0: Francis Schaeffer was an American. He was born in 1912 to a working class family. And as we come to Francis in his late teens, we find him at high school. He's struggling academically and he's attending a liberal church. During this period, he helps a Russian who's been using a book about Greek philosophy to learn English. And somehow, somehow, in and amongst this whole business of dealing with a book that's trying to understand the world, Schaefer moves from Greek philosophy to a quite different explanation, the Bible. He reads, and he reads, and he reads, and only by reading he responds. He commits himself to our Lord Jesus Christ. And by 1930, when he's 18, he was ready to write in his diary, all truth is from the Bible. In 1935, age 23, he marries Edith Seville, the daughter of a missionary, and he also enters Westminster Theological Seminary. And for those for whom the names mean something, his lecturers included Cornelius Van Til, J. Gresham Machen, John Murray, Alan McRae. In 1947, Schaeffer, now 35, as a pastor of the Bible Presbyterian Church, is authorised, in the context of concern about Christian liberalism, to carry out a fact-finding tour of Europe with a particular regard to young people. By 1951, Francis is almost 40 and he and Edith are settled in Switzerland. In and around these years, Francis begins to wrestle with how to best speak biblical truth to the contemporary situation. He begins to develop his own particular way of explaining speaking, both in his apologetical style and content. And it just so happens that there are numerous boarding school schools in the part of Switzerland in which he's living, And the young people come from these schools and listen to Francis. And they are engaged. Indeed, the way Francis spoke biblical truth not only engaged these young people, many of them committed their lives to the Lord Jesus. And the young people keep coming and Francis keeps speaking in his own particular way. Before long... This evangelism leads Francis and Edith, this was absolutely a joint activity between man and wife, the two together. They begin to develop their home into an open house community, where people would come and stay and be part of the household for a few days or a few weeks, and they would bring their questions, and they would receive biblical answers from Francis. This household was called Brie. I think it means Shelter. It was the first of many. A second opened here in England in 1958. Francis died in 1984 at the age of 72, by which time his particular and distinctive way of speaking biblical truth had been transformed from talks to tapes to books. We are here tonight with a particular concern to see how Francis Schaeffer might deepen our ability to engage in the world as Christians and specifically through this area of apologetics to give a defence of the faith, to witness to reality. If one considers Francis Schaeffer's writings, over 20 books, and asks, what for him is the most important aspect of Christian apologetics? what would he have us understand is our primary means to the defence of Christianity? Then I think there can only be one answer. The Christian. Primarily not an argument, but a person. Our conduct, individually and collectively as the church, are for him the primary basis for the defence of the faith. I say that Because so much of his writings are written to guide us into biblical principles of conduct for every part of life. And for Schaeffer, every part of life means every part of life. There isn't a single issue in human affairs that is exempt from biblical principles. So we find his writings include the intellectual, the way we think and the need to think biblically. The creative, our engagement and experience in all aspects of art and culture and recreation. The social, issues of environment, morality. For instance, taking one issue that was of particular concern to him, defending the unborn child. The church, of course. Its order and the defence of a biblical Christianity. In all these things one can divide Schaeffer's teaching into two types of concerns. Firstly, that what we contend for takes its direction from God's revelation, the Bible. Secondly, in all these contentions for truth, Schaeffer urges that there must also be love. Schaefer will not have it that it is sufficient to stand for the truth. Nor is the act of truth-telling the same as loving. And love for Schaeffer includes will, includes thought, and also includes feelings. What does that mean? Well, let's imagine a situation that must have occurred more than once to Francis. He is perhaps engaged in a discussion with a young woman who opens up a discussion about abortion by saying, a woman has a right to choose to terminate the pregnancy. Perhaps this young woman isn't just talking about ideas. Perhaps she's pregnant, or perhaps she's had an abortion. I can imagine Schaefer beginning by speaking about how wonderful a human being is, and how the Bible grounds that wonder in being made in the image of God. How the Bible shows us that a person doesn't stop being a person because they are located in the womb and dependent on their mother for sustenance. And furthermore, how the Bible shows us what it is to have a regard and to treat another person properly. There's nothing sugary about this love. There may well be pain on both sides of this exchange. However, this approach does spring from a very different attitude than that which simply attacks this woman with abortion is murder. Schaefer is determined that the Christian must feel, think and will a love for this young woman. For Schaefer, this young woman is an image bearer of God, albeit marred. This young woman is a person, albeit fallen. The Christian must express the truth in the context of an actual love, a regard for the person to whom the truth is spoken. It is not that truth stops being true when it is presented without love, that would be a complete misunderstanding of what Schaeffer is saying. Rather, he would say, without love, we have an ugly Christianity. And Christianity should always be beautiful, because it is beautiful. It should be noticed that my imaginative illustration of Schaeffer dealing in truth and love is an encounter over abortion that relates to an individual. When he deals with those who, for instance, promote abortion, the teachers and the legislators, it is different. In these exchanges, well, Jim Packer describes his attitude as broken-hearted scorn and likens him to Jeremiah. Now... It would be entirely proper for us to spend our time tonight considering the way in which Schaeffer applies biblical principles to each area of engagement with the world. We could do that. However, I want us to consider one element of Francis Schaeffer's teaching that runs like a spinal column through all his work. And that is his teaching about what I will call a biblical understanding of knowing. Biblical understanding of knowing. Schaefer uses the philosophical label, epistemology, but that just means an understanding of how we know. If you will bear with me, I have a personal reason for doing this. Well, I can't claim theological, philosophical or academic credential for being charged to speak to you tonight. I do at least have personal credentials. I'm Jewish. Uh, I was brought up in Glasgow within a conservative Jewish family, not an Orthodox family like Gateshead, but a conservative, albeit increasingly irreligious one, as I grew up. By the time I got to my teens, I had turned my back on Judaism and embraced, I guess, all the thoughts and attitudes of the secular world around me. I thoroughly flirted with religions and philosophies. But in 1984... I guess that was the year that Schaefer died. 1984, I found myself on the top of a double-decker bus not far from here, Westgate Hill. And it seemed to me as if I was confronted by one of two choices. On the one hand, I could simply concede that life had no meaning. That human values were just mere wishful thinking to make life easier. Or on the other hand, and though I could not explain the theology of it, on the other hand, that somehow God had died for me on the cross. I'm obviously here tonight because I chose and was chosen for the latter. Now, being brought up in a Jewish family means, of course, that I had no experience or understanding of what the church was, His denominations, his divisions meant nothing personally to me. I had Christian friends who would make remarks and guidance, but I didn't listen. And so I did a very logical thing. I chose to go to whichever church was closest to where I live. (laughs) Now, I thought that I was entering a community of people who, in some sense, had made the same decisive step of faith that I had. What I actually found was many people who were neutral, one glorious exception who was helpful, and a great number of people who were positively hostile. These people were advancing against me the same arguments against my new faith, the same arguments which had once held me back from faith, they said, you can't be sure it's true. It's arrogant of you to think it's true. You can't just dismiss other religions. You can't depend on what the Bible says. I should hasten to add at this point, I do not live anywhere in the vicinity of St. Stephen's (laughs) Elsick. And I I was genuinely traumatized I had no answers to what they said. Oh, I would pretend that I could answer them. But inwardly, when I went home, I was distraught. Here were people who were claiming to be the authentic voice of Christianity. And their apologetic overwhelmed me. I no longer had any reason for my beliefs. And at least at an emotional level, I felt my faith was slipping from me. And then a friend... He gave me a book. He gave it with a kind of remark of that he couldn't understand a word of it. <laughs> I think the implication was he couldn't understand very much of what I said, so somehow we'd get on, the book and I. <laughs> this book, The God Who Is There by Francis Schaeffer, presented me with a simple proposition. Something cannot both be A and not A. I see that many of you are immediately having a sympathy with my friend. Let me try and root it. If we say that Jesus is Lord, then we are saying that every proposition that says Jesus is not Lord is false. If that seems too simple, straightforward to deserve further attention... If it seems too basic to say something's either true or it is false, then I hope with the time we have available that I can convey Schaeffer's contribution to our apologetics from this simple starting point. I would point out that if it seems at times during the rest of this talk with so much attention to ideas, and particularly ideas about the way in which our society tends to think about the world, if it seems that Schaeffer's apologetic of biblical knowing has more to do with thought than action, bear this in mind. Schaeffer's first and foremost intention was evangelism. His first and foremost concern was that men and women might not perish, but they would have everlasting life. Schaefer was a fisher of men. If the fish would only jump into the boat, Schaefer would not have begun his work. Schaefer, however, faced the selfsame frustrations that most people who have evangelised in this society will have experienced. Somehow, in the ears of those to whom we declare the profoundest declaration of all, that Christ saves sinners... There is a lack of challenge or provocation. Too often there is indifference. Too often there is the you can't prove it or the somewhat patronising, well, if it makes you happy. Schaefer felt this as if this was a point at which the enemy was at work and therefore this was a point at which he must direct his efforts. So Schaeffer's apologetic for biblical knowing has an evangelistic aim. And his teaching presents the first task as understanding how people in our society think about the world around them. What is it about the way people think that creates a barrier to the sense of truth and relevance of the gospel? Schaefer asks us to look at the history of the way people have thought about the world. Schaefer takes us a long way back, somewhere into the 13th century, and sometimes beyond, the 13th century sees as a watershed. Things happened around this period in Christendom that were decisive for society. A change occurred. Schaeffer suggests that this began with Thomas Aquinas, or at least with those whose thinking followed on from his. Schaeffer relates this to a general change in thinking and in the arts that is called the Renaissance. I think that's the Italian word for new birth. So this is somewhere in the 13th century. In many ways, the Renaissance is a wonderful change. The thinkers and the artists, rather than restricting their attention only to the so-called higher things, theology, revelation, give attention to ordinary things. Attention is given to nature. There are developments in science and arts. should point out that Schaeffer often argues the changes in the way we view the world begin with thinkers and then pass down through the arts and eventually appear in popular culture. And last of all, liberal theologians embrace popular culture, dress it up in religious language and present it as the latest enlightenment. And Schaefer means that is a serious point and offers evidence. Following on from Schaeffer's understanding that changes of thinking produce changes in art, Schaeffer sees evidence of the change of attitude in paintings of that time. So, for instance, prior to that time, a painting would show Mary as a symbol, not as a real woman. But now, Mary would be portrayed as an ordinary woman, a mother, rather than a symbol. Paintings would portray a real interest in landscape, this was new and it reflected a new attitude. So far, there is nothing that should cause disquiet for Christian people. God's good creation had been neglected in Christendom and this was being corrected. Schaeffer, however, identifies another monumental development in and amongst all this. Schaefer argues that prior to the Renaissance, thinking and reasoning were largely subordinate to religious understanding, to revelation or to the church. If you wanted to know whether something was true, the explanation would be in terms of the Bible or the church or theology. The Renaissance thinkers, however, began to view things in a different way. In a certain confidence about human ability, they assumed that reason, intellectual pursuit, could proceed without reference to the higher things, without reference to theology or revelation. The assumption was made that reason had the ability to act without reference to anything except itself. Reason was a reliable and valid procedure for getting at the truth. You looked at the world and you asked the question, does God exist? Or when is war just? And you followed the procedure and you came up with the answer. Initially, this use of reason was a complement to the answers given by revelation But, in time, very quickly, it became a matter of reason alone. Not, of course, moving on in time for the Protestant reformers. These reformers saw that reason was a great creation of God, just as our capacity for morality was a great creation. But just as our moral ability is not what it should be, neither was our reason, these reformers argued, that in the historic fall of mankind and Adam, every part of men and women, including reason, was affected. How could something that was marred by the fall be a source of all truth? Apart from these Reformation thinkers, however, the theologians and thinkers of the time were becoming bolder and bolder in the assumption that reason alone could explain everything. Everything includes what it is to be a man or a woman, the existence of God, how we should live, how we know about the world. So, the first step in Schaeffer's argument is to show that our history is one in which an assumption developed, that you could understand men and women, the world we live in, through reason alone. Indeed, reason alone had tremendous successes. Reason alone, coupled with the expectation of an ordered world, gave knowledge. It was excellent at developing mathematics, mechanics, physics, chemistry and endless other areas of science. Reason alone is excellent at measuring and analysing. This is as true today as it was then. There are no end of scientific and technological successes based on reason alone coupled with the expectation of an ordered world. Schaeffer, however, argues that reason alone as a monumental problem. Schaeffer argues that past thinkers of our society tried and tried and tried to explain that a human being has value on the basis of reason alone, that there is right and wrong on the basis of reason alone, and they failed. The problem is a practical one. Reason alone measures things, space, time, frequency, size, behaviour, and it sees relationships between the things it measures. So you can look at billiard balls, and if you're Newton, you can develop the theory of mechanics. And ultimately, such understanding can lead to the building of the most spectacular machines. But it doesn't help you to explain why a human being is more important than a machine You can look at the universe and if you're an Einstein, you can announce and substantiate that E equals MC squared and ultimately develop atomic weapons and atomic power. But reason alone won't help you to judge whether there is a moral justification for using them or not. If you're a neurobiologist, you can map brain states to brain chemistry and anatomy, but you won't find a basis for free will. If you're an evolutionist, you can examine fossils and living species with a view to putting every jot and tittle of the theory in its place, but you will not find a purpose for living, only chance and time. Reason alone gives knowledge, but because it begins with things, chemicals, molecules, mechanics, physiology, behaviour, it has absolutely no means of reaching morality, value, meaning or purpose. This is the analysis of Schaeffer in the centuries leading up to our time. Initially, this outcome wasn't apparent. Initially, the thinkers thought that reason alone gives all knowledge, would ultimately illuminate all essential questions. The shelves of libraries are full of the wonderful and gifted attempts to find some way of using reason alone, of reaching beyond things. Schaeffer would have us know That they all fail. Now, Schaeffer would have us understand that as we come into the 20th century, these thinkers came to recognize they could not simply go on failing to find a basis by reason alone for meaning and purpose. And these thinkers came to a tragic conclusion. They concluded that there is no basis for value or meaning or purpose. For them, the only way to explain life, to know about anything, was through reason alone. But they recognised that reason alone provides no basis for meaning or values. And so they concluded that we live in a world without meaning or values. Can we feel the weight of the horror of this? I did when I sat in the bus. To be a human being and yet believe that there is no meaning to existence. To feel that a human being has no more value than the chairs on which we're sitting. To feel that in terms of reason there is no more moral significance to raping a child than caring for a child. Schaefer isn't concerning himself with psychopaths. His focus isn't on people who do evil because they find pleasure in it and have no feeling for others. Schaefer is considering people who want there to be a basis for morality and meaning, for in their commitment to reason alone, they cannot find it, and they conclude that it does not exist. Schaeffer describes this giving up any hope of finding a basis for human value and morality as crossing a line of despair. It's not that these thinkers were any more evil than anyone else. It's just that they had come to the conclusion that there was no reason for existence. All these people can really say is we are here. Let's get on with living. We can bring in a label at this point. The label is Postmodern. In terms of Schaeffer's analysis, ideas are modern when they still hope to find a reasoned basis for morality and value. But when that hope is abandoned, we can refer to these ideas as postmodern. Schaeffer's interest isn't ultimately in great thinkers. His contention, as I said, is that what the great thinkers think filters down to popular culture. People with good educations will, of course, think these thoughts with a marvellous wealth of supporting information. People with high IQs will think these thoughts with great sophistication. But their under, underlying ideas will be, self, be the same, self-same thoughts as passed through the minds of the most simple individual. So today, when you talk to people about meaning, purpose and morality, they speak as people whose thoughts have been moulded by the ideas of these thinkers. There's a whole medley of catchphrases that will, people will give you in response to evangelism. Nobody can know. You can't be sure. It's just your opinion. Schaefer would have us recognise that people say those things because they have accepted that reason cannot know about values and purpose. However, Schaeffer would also have us note that even though people may say and believe that reason cannot know about values and meaning, a person cannot escape the fact that meaning and purpose are a part of their makeup, a part of what they are. Schaeffer has a phrase for this, the mannishness of man, by which he simply means what it is to be a human being. To be a human being is to have, for example, as Schaeffer puts it, moral motions. Whether it is a young child or an undeveloped community, anywhere in history and across the world, people have a moral code. Schaeffer calls that moral motions. It may be a hideous code. It may be totally distorted from what it should be, but they will have a moral code. And they may, of course, not be able to keep the code. In fact, they probably won't. Schaeffer would argue they never do, but they have one. And they have a code, they have a moral code, moral motions, because God made men and women like that. So Schaeffer would have as note that while people have a powerful assumption that reason has no way of knowing about the basis for morality and human value, human beings cannot remove the fact of morality or value from their life. This is a very practical matter. It isn't theoretical. is something which many of us if not all of us have experienced you discuss Christianity with someone and they respond with the kind of answers I've already mentioned who knows what's true but if you ask this person for example how they view what happened in the concentration camps in Germany they'll immediately say it's evil it was wrong but if you ask them on what basis they hold that view you'll be told that people are equal or people matter or people shouldn't oppress one another. But if you press the matter, and Schaefer is very particular about not letting go the question, how do you know that there is a basis for human value and morality? Ultimately, if you keep pressing the question, what you come to is always something like this. I just believe it's wrong. Ultimately, people are saying, I have no basis for knowing that men and women matter. I just believe it. So if people don't base their most prized belief on reason, on what are they basing them? (coughs) Schaeffer tells us they do it by what he calls a leap of faith. Normally, we think of faith as a Christian virtue. But in this case, that's not so. Christian faith is a trust in a God who, although unseen, is there and will do what he has promised. However, Schaefer would have us recognise that this faith, the faith of the postmodern thinker, is quite different. This faith is simply an act of will whereby you hope that something is true without any basis in reason. This faith is an act of leaving reason behind, escaping from reason, because you can't live with the conclusions that you have been brought to by the assumption that only reason alone can know. In summary, Schaeffer is suggesting that people put their trust in the idea that reason alone is the only way of knowing about anything. However, reason alone does not lead to any knowledge about meaning, purpose or values. And rather than accept that, rather than accept that trust in reason alone as the only basis for knowledge was a mistake, people would rather conclude that you cannot know about purpose and value. Our values and purpose are written into the very marrow of what it is to be human, because people are made in the image of God. So people can not pretend these things don't exist. So how do people account for them? As an act of faith, hoping, wishing it were so. Within such a reality, without reason, without truth, A can be true and false at the same time. Jesus can be the only Lord, without excluding Muhammad or Buddha or so on and so forth. Having laid out Schaeffer's analysis of the way in which society reasons about knowing, how does Schaeffer say it should be for Christians? What is biblical knowing like? Well, Schaeffer offers a marvellous visual illustration. He speaks about the Gothic arch of truth, the Gothic arch of truth. I mean, he's obviously looking at some building and the way in which the window space is engineered, a Gothic building. And how is the masonry above the window held up? It's held up by two independent structures, one on the right and one on the left. And Schaeffer is putting it to us that knowing and therefore truth about values and meaning and purpose is possible because of two complementary acts of God. On the one side is the Bible. Without the Bible, the truth is out there, but it will never be in here. The Bible makes known to us where otherwise we could only guess at without knowing whether our guesses were right and wrong. It is important to note that when Schaeffer speaks of the Bible, he is being very particular in what he means. Even the idea of inerrancy is not satisfactory to him. Schaeffer would have us recognise that when we come to a historical statement in the Bible, it means this happened. And it doesn't matter whether we find the statement in Genesis or Acts. And when we come to a theological statement, it means this is the spiritual reality. And when we come to a moral statement, it means do this. And when we come to a statement about the experience of God's servants, it means this is what a servant of God can feel. And when we come to a beautiful song or poetry, it means this is what God's servants sang or wrote. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it beautiful? For Schaefer, there is no going behind the Bible to some other truth. Rather, the Bible brings before us all we can know. It does not mean that we know exhaustively, but rather that we know things sufficiently. Schaefer presents another image, one of an upturned pyramid, where we grasp the smallest part of it. We are too finite to grasp the whole knowledge of God, but the part that we grasp is true truth. And it is sufficient. Such is one side of the Gothic arch of truth. But What about the other side? The other side is reason. Again, I emphasise for Schaeffer, reason has nothing to do with education or having a high IQ. Reason is simply part of our created nature, Little children show fantastic reasoning powers. My own son, I think, was six when he asked, Daddy, why doesn't God feed the people with no food? That question must be one of the theological questions of any time. And he's a little child of six who recognises it. Without reason... We couldn't recognise that the Bible is a book to be read. Without reason, we wouldn't have human communication. Without reason, we couldn't recognise the Bible's claims. Reason is another way of saying that we live in an ordered world. The world has continuity and order that we can know together. And that's how God made his world. The psalmist tells us that the word of God is a light to our feet. I think Schaeffer is suggesting that reason is the eye by which we see the path which is eliminated by the light. So if we have the Bible on one side and I've taken time to convey that this isn't a weakened version of the Bible and we have reason on the other what does that mean about the relationship between the Bible and reason? It means there are no contradictions between the Bible and reason. There is no contradiction between faith and reason. So for Schaefer, if you're asking someone to respond in faith or continue in faith and you exclude reason, you're asking faith to work in a way that God did not intend. For Schaeffer, we respond in faith to God's truth And that truth always involves the Bible, and it always involves reason. Faith continues to be faith, an act of trust, but it responds to something that is reasonable. Indeed, Schaeffer argues that Christianity, and only Christianity, is the only reasonable explanation of reality. So what I have presented to you is Schaeffer's epistemology. And I have called it a biblical understanding of knowing. Schaeffer covers many other matters in his writing. His writing is extensive. But I have chosen this one because I feel it has a central role in his teaching. How well does he do? What evaluation do we make of it as Christians? Well, Schaeffer set himself the evangelistic task of speaking the unchanging gospel in a way that its challenge and its relevance would not be deflected. He did this without compromise to the highest possible view of the Bible. Many people committed their lives to Jesus and continued in their faith as a result of their contact with Schaefer's teaching his insights continue to produce fruits in the Libri communities that exist across the world in his own time in a practical sense in a glorious sense he succeeded however we do need to ask how essential is Schaeffer's pattern for evangelism? Is it essential to begin evangelism by demonstrating to the person that the basis of their prized beliefs are irrational? Some of Schaeffer's critics felt that that was what he was saying, that he was saying that it was essential to proceed with evangelism by tackling a person's assumptions. Schaefer insists that he would never say there was only one method for evangelism because he's dealing with people and people have to be dealt with individually. Having said that, he does have enormous enthusiasm for his own approach. Beginning evangelism by getting the person to explore and recognise their beliefs and that they're based on irrational assumptions Well, here's a man who prayerfully and biblically wrestled out these responses because of the questions that were being brought to him and the exchanges that he was having with these young people who came. His historical surveys of how ideas developed are the work of an enthusiast, not an academic. His arguments are the work of a faithful servant, not a philosopher. I'm not for a moment suggesting that he was in any way cavalier with the facts or light with his analysis. But his purpose was always pragmatic. He wanted to speak the gospel so that the people who came would hear its relevance. He did that wonderfully. And God blessed his efforts. No wonder he was enthusiastic but we cannot assume that the people we meet will respond to us as they did to Schaefer, even if we use Schaefer's approach. And I find in my own evangelism, I do approach it in the same way as Schaeffer. I do try and guide the conversation towards examining the basis of people's existing beliefs. The problem I find is that most people, not all, don't seem to care whether they have a rational basis for what they believe. I do think that if Schaefer had been born in 1962 and he had been responding, he would have responded and presented us with something just as wonderful and inspiring. I, I think perhaps our society has moved on a little. And I, I do think of those verses from Romans, the first, uh, second, half of the first section of Romans of this God giving people over. And I wonder whether perhaps if things started with this lack of concern for a rational basis, that maybe people in our society have drifted further into it and are even further disconnected from the need to, to have some rational basis or the madness of not. I would say if one approaches the use of Schaeffer's teaching about biblical understanding of knowing, from the view viewpoint Of representing Christianity, I mean the general presentation rather than a specific intention of evangelizing, then I think his teaching has the most wonderful quality of turning the tables. See, I often find that situations are organized in a way that I have to defend my faith, I have to account for my beliefs, that the burden of proof rests on me. Schaeffer's approach sweeps that away. The Christian need only stop and say, no, I want you to answer me a question. And I've never, ever heard anyone give any answer at the end of the day to the basis of what they believe other than, I just believe. Schaeffer has revealed a delicious irony it is part of the postmodern attitude to consider itself in some lofty position of awareness, self-awareness, looking down on religious people, poor Christian people. What we actually find under Schaeffer's analysis is that the postmodern view has to fall back on, I just believe, while we Christians have something so much more robust. I also find Schaefer a welcome contrast to the sort of evangelism that invites people to make a commitment to Jesus in a way that excludes their reasoning. However, Schaefer at times seems to go to the opposite extreme and speaks as if conversion has not taken place until a person has accepted biblical knowing in the sense that I've outlined this evening. That's too far for me. The renewing of the mind mind, is however a biblical instruction a part of our sanctification and whatever the weaknesses in Schaeffer's philosophy and historical research I'm not in a position to judge. His teaching seems so very honouring to the God who speaks to us through the Bible's teaching and who made us as creatures of reason. As a last word For myself at least, I would say this. When I come to the resurrection, and if such a thing makes sense in the world to come, one of the things I want to do is to seek out Francis Schaeffer and say, you don't know me, but thank you. And thank you. And thank you, Brian.
1: Can we just uh, take a few minutes of offer, and while we... I'm sure Brian has prompted... Uh, Some questions. One question in my mind is whether I ought to give my talk next week at all, I think. Um, However, uh, it will be interesting to compare the two later. Can we just have a short break uh, and uh, stretch our arms and legs and take off anything you want to, if you want want to do that, because it is warm, I think. Uh, And uh, then we'll resume in a couple of minutes for some questions and comments. I uh, have a dim view of academics and intellectuals, um, myself, and uh, I apologize to those in front of me this evening who are in that category. Don't feel you must, you have to be an academic, uh, or an intellectual to ask questions. You know, I have a dim view of questions as well. <laughs> <laughs> um. Pardon? Well, Mr. Haig is about to ask you a question. You must feel free to make any comment that you want to make or ask a question that you want to ask. Please do that. And for the sake of those one or two people who have not been to one of these things before, uh, we we have this new instrument for picking up questions, which Mr. Dobson will take around the room in a minute. Uh, That means that um, you mustn't touch it or speak loudly into it just speak in your normal voice and uh, he'll hold it in front of you and ask your question but can we do that in a disciplined and orderly way please who is willing to ask a question Um, and those people are scratching their shoulders or in danger of being asked I think the gentleman over here I was told last week uh, by uh, someone who's always telling me off that I didn't repeat the question. So if I understand it, I'll try and repeat it as well.
0: The classical method of finding truth, as you said, was if A is true, B is untrue. And Schaeffer said that the degeneration in the philosophical world occurred when the German philosophers of the, last, of the mid-19th century, Hegel particularly, that there's no absolute truth and that truth is built up very, very gradually. I wonder if you'd like to comment on that and uh, whether you agree with it or not.
1: Could you all hear the question? <clears throat> I'm glad. I sir, I won't repeat it. <laughs>
0: I think the question you're referring to the, this basic assumption in the world, Schaeffer says, it is part of reality that uh, simply that God has made a world in which, um, if something is true, its opposite can't be false. And it, it, it's hard to think because if you think that way, if you haven't been influenced by the change in society, that seems so obvious. It is hard to imagine that people can't agree with it, and yet the fact is that so much of uh, what people say and the way in which people think nowadays is is in the sense that well a bit of A will be true and a bit of the other thing will be true and and there'll be some higher truth that comes out of it. And uh, you, you pointing by the Schaefer actually sees Hegel as uh, one of the thinkers whose thoughts. Produce this, this change, and uh, that, yes that's, that's exactly what Schaefer does indeed right. Um, this notion that things can both be true and yet not true. Um, Schaefer 's main point is that if you allow a discussion to go on in that vein, If you allow people, if you enter into any kind of evangelism, any kind of encounter, and the other person is working on the basis that truth does not mean that the opposite isn't true. So you say Jesus is Lord, that doesn't mean that, you know, Jesus is not Lord is is untrue. If if that person is operating like that, you've got a problem in communication. And so one of Schaeffer's first observation was to recognize that many people that Christians had encounters with were thinking about the world in a different way and that you had to in order to have a real communication and to genuinely present the gospel with its full force and challenge you had to get underneath that and say Schaefer does that by forcing people back Um, on that okay fine you believe that that's fine well what does that then mean what does that then mean when you know some horror happens in the world you know uh, forcing back the moral issues but behind that um, because obviously if it's the case that things aren't true and false then obviously morality doesn't have its polarity either that's that answered your question Yes, just just,
1: sorry. There's a gentleman in the back first of all, and then a lady in front.
2: Uh, I'm interested in this uh, question of epistemology as well, and uh, uh, how truth can be exclusive uh, or or inclusive. I wonder if it could help you with some of the practical implications of this. I um, joined, fairly recently in the last two or three years, my local church. Um, listening to what you said, that might have been my first mistake. <laughs> um, <laughs> but we're, we're required in the Reformed Church to wrestle with the scriptures, to read the scriptures and wrestle with their, their meaning and come to our own understanding of them. Now... I guess that most other people sitting in the chairs beside me in church have done that and come to their own but a slightly different interpretation uh, of the scriptures in certain aspects of them uh, to me. Um, Now, where where does that leave uh, the the truth? If we uh, worship the one God and acknowledge uh, the Bible as true, but our understanding of its truth is individual to each of us, and that's within a Christian community, um, what are the practical implications of working together as, as Christian fellows?
1: That's a long question as well. I, I, Does everyone hear it yeah. and understood it? That Brian even answered it.
0: Okay, if I understood you correctly, the question is about if you find yourself at church and simply people have different interpretations, is that correct? Um, so. You know, what I've presented, or at least presented in Schaefer, is that there's a clear road um, to, to truth. And yet you're raising the fact that in church, um, the practicalities are that people may have different views of, of interpretation. Okay. Well, I think Schaefer would first of all say that one of the tasks of Christians is to embrace. A biblical christianity he he does not muck about about this you know either christianity is based on the bible and as i say i I took uh, some time to try and flesh out what that means for schaefer and that does mean um that the bible is saying what it's saying um for schaefer interpretation is not a problem with the Bible. You know, he doesn't see the Bible, I think he uses the illustration once of some sort of jungle, which reason has to take a machete to to cut its way through. He would say that the problems of interpretation, interpretation with the Bible are purely created because we won't accept the Bible at face value. I mean, I hope I've also emphasised that Schaeffer isn't, um, I don't know what the right word is, Schaeffer, you know, doesn't imagine when Jesus said to disciples, you know, I'm sending out a, a sheep amongst wolves, that he's somehow so bound to uh, literal interpretation that, that he forgets that language has metaphors and therefore the disciples were changed into sheep or anything like that. But on the other hand, when he opens the book of Genesis, and he makes a big point of this, when he opens the book of Genesis, he says to himself, is the Bible presenting itself to me as a piece of history? He's not expecting to find um, an enormously deep scientific knowledge, because obviously that hadn't been given to people at that time. And his answer is simply, well, this reads as a historical a historical statement, so it must be history. And if you apply that through each of the different, different ways in which the Scripture speaks to us, um, you come to Schaeffer's view of the Bible. Now, obviously, if we share our time with people who don't take that approach, if we do, then we, we have to say that we don't have a common starting point. Now, Schaeffer was also very committed to the church being pure. You know? His view was that Christians um, should be in a place where everyone shares that starting point. Now, I belong to the Church of England. Enough said. Um, you know, so part of the problem, I think, simply arrives depending on what the group of people who have around us is. Um, but unless we start with this, this part of the um, of the gothic art of truth truly being what it should be, we, of course, will not have a meeting of minds. But if we do then in all the essentials, obviously, there will always be differences on what we call secondary things, but that's secondary. But on the primary things, I don't think, um, and I think evangelicalism is a fact of that, that across all the boundaries of different denominations, I mean, Reformed people, Baptists and so on, that there is a solidarity. Uh, And I think that chief would recognize that's an expression of that. Have I covered your point?
1: lady in the second front row over here
2: okay um, I'd, I'd like to know what, how you answered your son when he asked why God wasn't feeding all the hungry
1: people the question <laughs> is I knew that once Brian <laughs> raised that question someone asked the, what, what? how did you answer your son Brian can you remember, <laughs> sure can remember. and did he accept it
0: well, my son is a delightful young man, but he is a pagan. He's not, he's not, I mean, in the best sense of the word, uh, he's not a Christian. Um, so maybe I didn't answer it well enough. I mean, I think perhaps relevant tonight is, um, how would Schaeffer perhaps answer this question of, of suffering? Um, I think, um, it, it is a subject which he most certainly spoke of, um, I can remember because um, essentially what we're talking about: why, why does God permit suffering? I mean, that, that's one of the, the particular expressions of it. You know, you know, the hunger. But I mean, it could be absolutely anything, couldn't it? I remember Schaefer, I think, remarks: he had a friend who, whose son um, was killed, a Christian friend whose son was killed in a mountaineering accident, and whether by chance or wherever, the son's Bible was open at those pages from Jude which talk about he who will keep you from falling and this this son. I, I think that um Schaeffer the one thing Schaefer never does with anything is um, is in a sense to stifle the human feeling. You know um, you know I, I think Schaefer always does start there. He, he would never start with a quick philosophical fix to that question. You know, he, he would want to say, you know, when he looks at the world and uh, the, the, the anguish that he feels, he talks about crying in the mountains. One thing I think he would start with, and, and I know for him was very important, was that incident when Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus. And there's Jesus. And, you know, here's a, essentially a death, the death of a friend. And this is the world in which God made. And Schaeffer places a lot of importance on Jesus' reaction. He says, Jesus was angry. Jesus was angry. And Schaeffer wants to say that Jesus was angry because here was suffering, here was pain, and here was death. That we should never, ever um, overlook the fact that um, the suffering in the world is not essentially something that God... Is you know is opposed to is angry at. He would also want to talk, and here again we go back to to the book of Genesis. Schaefer feels strongly: if you take out the historic fall of mankind, what are you left with? Are you saying that God made the world as it is now? That this world, with all its troubles is actually what God intended see if is very strong on this point he wants us to recognize that the one explanation which resolves doesn't take the pain away but resolves a lot of the tensions over suffering is the recognition that we did this in Adam that this isn't the picture as it's meant to be eden's a picture of it's meant to be I mean, obviously, you can go push back further and say, why was the possibility there, and, and so on, and then perhaps talk about free will. But, but I think those would be the two essential things that Schaefer would speak of. Uh, can, I just,
1: I can, can, you, can you speak into the microphone, please?
2: Um, how, uh, you knowing Schaefer so well, how would he have thought, if the, the question was answered, that it's not God, God doesn't do bad things, people do bad things because they've been given free will to be good or bad. Would Schaefer think along those lines?
1: God doesn't do bad things. It's human beings who do
0: it in the exercise of their free will. How would he respond to that? Well, I'm sure he would say yes, but Schaeffer would not, um, having said yes, Schaeffer would also not detract uh, or accept any detraction from God's sovereignty over what's happening. You know, it's... Um, Yes, I mean, you know, Schaefer, you know, I, I think would say that you know these are the deepest matters that you know that we wrestle within these things, and you know, um, going back to the pyramid, as we hold on to this pyramid, you know, we, we don't know exhaustively. Uh, we know some things, and you know, two of the things we know is, is that human beings have free will, and one of the other, the other thing we know is that God is a sovereign God. You know, he's, He is has a control now. If you say, well, how, how does that all work out? I mean, it's not just, this isn't just a, a, an issue for this, but in many areas we're presented with two things, and we can't quite see how these two things work out. And, and I don't think Schaefer would, uh, offhand, I can't think of how Schaefer would move that on much deeper than that, but he would essentially want to talk about our, our walk with God, our walk in the Spirit, and, and the, uh, the accepting of both those those the principles?
1: Behind you there's a gentleman in the front row of the back stalls. Uh,
3: you Schaeffer believed that ideas have consequences and uh, you talked about um, ideas beginning with thinkers being transmitted into art uh, along down to popular culture um, and eventually being rehashed by some trendy vicar. Um, I wonder if you could uh, give an example of a particular idea that, ha- this may be a t- an unfair
1: question, but a particular idea that has been through that process. Do you all understand the question? I, I must speak up for Vickers. <laughs> <laughs> there are trendy ministers too, uh, there really are. It- uh, I, trendiness and nonsense is not confined to the Church of England. It's pretty widespread, I have to say that. And also, just to, just to disabuse you, the church I referred to at the very beginning was not
0: Jesmond Parish Church.
1: <laughs> Can we have the question? Right.
0: The answer. Um, is pornography all right? I, I don't mean is pornography all right. I mean, if we... Yes,
1: it is. As an example.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think there's probably always been pornography. I mean, you know, so it's always existed. But but I think that um, that a, i'm not quite sure which philosophers um a Schaefer would um, point at. I I think he makes reference to the market. de Sad, I don't know if you know, in some of his comments. But I mean I think if you, you the thinkers um, begin to develop their ideas about uh, freedom and morality. I, I think you would mention Rousseau. Um And, you know, as you come into the 20th century and you, you begin to see how pornography plays its part in arts, you know, initially it's a high art form, you know, it's something special and somehow seen as highbrow or it can take its place in there. And, of course, you only need to turn the clock on um, to you know, to today, I mean, and now on television in the afternoon, of course, you s- there are films broadcast which had an 18 certificate when I was a boy. I mean, it's a remarkable change in such a short period of time. Um, and I'm trying to think whether that there are any liberal theologians who, who would now want to kind of sanctify um, something like, that. and I, I think I wasn't at the talk by the former Archbishop Spong, Is it uh, an American um, part of the American ecumenical? No, not the, the, the yeah, the Episcopal Church in America. Church of yeah, and America. but but I think basically, I mean, he he is sanctifying the ideas of removing morality from you know, sexuality, saying sexuality of itself is is got is amoral. I mean, you know, um, he, he wouldn't. Be, Advocate you curse people you force people to do things. So, in a sense, you know, I I think just briefly off the top of my head, that's how I would follow through with pornography.
1: Just to make life easy, there's a gentleman at the back on the back row there. Uh, You have to be careful what you do with your cable here, I think You you might strangulate somebody. Uh, just wondering,
2: uh, maybe you defend Schaefer on a little point of presuppositionalism. Um, he does seem to sort of isolate himself onto a sort of a desert island with his sort of, you know, okay, you you meet someone else on another island and you you sort of get them down to what they believe. But uh, uh, on his island, he has somehow got a the great assumption that, that you know you start with God. So he's sort of saying, well, I have got a great assumption as well. You have got a great assumption that you believe in something. I mean. Does he have any way of getting off his island with evidence to sort of meet the other person? Where's
0: the point of contact? Have you got a question? Right. Right. Let me just make sure I understand this. You're seeing a gap between Schaeffer's kind of thinking and arguments and the, the person who he's actually exchanging with. Is, is that right? Yeah. Well, you see, again, I go back. You see, I think Schaefer was an evangelist. And I don't think Schaefer ever set out with a philosophical task. And therefore, I think I, I'm not competent to judge with a, from a philosophical point of view that there's these gaps there. But I just think that Schaefer just wasn't trying to do that. You know, people were coming to him and he's saying, This isn't working. The old patterns of evangelism aren't working for me. What can I do to somehow shake people up, because they seem so sure about what they believe? Um, And and I I believe that that's what Schaefer was trying to trying to do. So, in a way, if the um, if the gaps, the kind of logical gaps exist, and and whether they may do or they may not do. Um, I, I think simply um, it really wasn't Schaefer's business and maybe when people brought those criticisms to him whether he suddenly tried to make it his business perhaps a, a little I, I don't know so your, your comments may well be valid
1: if you can extricate yourself out of the fact that Mr Naggs is taking him <laughs> two seats I take up three myself there's a gentleman the here as well who's got a question
3: Um, shalom Brian um, I'd, I'd like to take you back to the um, fact that you mentioned that you're Jewish and, and ask you um, something about Schaeffer's attitude to the Jewishness of, of uh, the, the basic Jewishness of the Christian faith yes. um, does he, you, you mentioned before that um, he was looking for the purity of the church or for a pure church mm. um, How does he does he talk about how can the church be pure when it's rejected its Jewish roots? And as part of that, um, you said that he uh, had turned from Greek philosophy to to biblical truth in his youth. Um, Does he recognize that the Bible, in fact, is a Jewish book throughout from from uh, Genesis to Revelation and that you can't understand it properly? without um, viewing it from its Hebraic thought patterns.
1: I think the question is clear. Yes, indeed. <laughs>
0: well, I don't think Schaefer in particular gives a great deal of attention to, to the Jewish people, you know, in the contemporary sense. I, I would say very, very strongly that Schaefer most self-consciously Sees his thinking and understanding as rooted in Judaism. Um, he sees the Jewish people as people who dealt with the the, the physical world, um, the land, the history, the God who comes and says, "I'm going to do that," and then does it. Th- that he sees the Jewish experience as the cradle in which um, a true and proper kind of um, knowing of the world happened and he, he sets that over and against what he feels are the, the other kind of phil- philosophical positions so I do think he's very strong and if you read his, his kind of commentaries on the Old Testament and the way he approaches things I think you would, you would uh, feel that that was the case and I've forgotten what the second part of your question was
3: um, the second part Uh, The second part was, um, uh, can can you understand the Bible properly without recognizing its Hebraic thought
0: patterns? No. Schaeffer would say you cannot understand the Bible unless you take on the Hebraic thought patterns. I mean, whether you recognize you're taking on the Hebraic thought patterns is another matter, but Schaeffer would be very explicit. If you're thinking biblically, then you're thinking in the form the underlying form laid down and experienced by the Jewish people.
1: Any further questions? Question over here.
0: Schaefer was very
3: distinctive. Could you make any comment on the influences that uh, led to his distinctive position if I can take it a little bit further and just to explain the question. Um, if you read uh, Schaefer's books, he doesn't make many references, I think, to, to those influences. But perhaps in some of his lectures, tapes, and so on, he might do so. I, I don't know. just wonder if you could comment on that. And in particular, one of the things that I wondered about was the influence of, of Van, Til- Van Til's work on, on his thinking.
0: yeah i mean um you know i think I think um there may be links to the other question that was asked about you know these this presuppositionalism um he he doesn't he doesn't it just um he never makes much reference at all um to to where his um Christian sources are with the exception of the bible um i think um it there may be a point where he's talking about the basis of personality, of being people, um, and um, that he is thinking back to the whole sense of the Trinity and what a wonderful, wonderful uh, piece of revelation um, the Trinity is. Obviously, the, 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 the Trinity, the word was developed after Scripture, but the whole sense in which um, we, we're dealing with persons and persons in the Trinity in community and, therefore, for, for Schaeffer, where do we find the roots of our own experience as human beings with human beings? It's in the Trinity. And I think but I may be misreading this back in, I think he, he may refer to Van Til in that. I, I think the other areas which, which he does refer to is um, is Abraham Kuyper. and this this sense in which different parts of life have their own um, their own distinctive way of, 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 being dealt with. So, you know, a church has its own form and shape and authority. Um, you know, and a marriage has another shape, you know, and there's a sense in which each of these are a sphere in which, you know, God has given authority and that you have to respond to the, the right sort of authority, uh, within each of these and each has its own nature. But, but I'm afraid I'm a little, weak in answering that.